am Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. And this is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. And this is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 92. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Don. This is Joe. Burritos! And this is Stella. And we are bringing you the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the weeks of April 29th through May 12th. We have a total of five books to cover and just a small amount of news. Of course, we have bad books for beginners. No DCU spotlight this episode. So this, this, I say this wholeheartedly, this should be a pretty quick episode. But then again, I've said that in the past and it hasn't been. <laughs> so let's get right into comic news. Like I said, only a few things to go over. On May 1st, there was an interview that posted up with Comic Resources with Tony Daniel. And in it, he talks a lot about Night of Owls, but there is some bits that were about the future of Detective Comics. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Resources, and Don will read for Tony Daniel. Charlotte and her sister Jill were the big focus of the Penguin arc that just finished, and were left with a question as to what will happen to them. Will this be a thread you pick back up on in the near future? Yes, we get back to Charlotte in issue 10. We'll have to see what happens during this coming arc in regard to her relationship with Bruce Wayne. Finally, for your last arc, you created some crazy-looking new villains like Snakeface, Hypnotic, Combustible, and some other crooks, all of whom were looking to Penguin for protection. For you, both as an artist and a writer, is the idea to switch back and forth between playing with established villains and introducing new ones in each arc? And will we get to see some of those villains popping up again soon? Exactly. I want to bring in some new villains to keep from leaning on the old established ones too much. I think it can be refreshing to introduce some new concepts for to Gotham City. Some of the characters I had the most fun with were sem- semi-obscure characters at one point themselves, like Fright, for instance, and now Professor Radium. So maybe one day, 20 years from now, a new writer might dig out some of my guys. As for seeing some of those characters again, yes, we will actually, and sooner than you think. Right, so let's see that interview. So exactly what we said in multiple past episodes about Tony Daniel uses a bunch of different things and then throws them at the wall and waits for something to stick. He says it himself by saying, well, maybe a new writer 20 years from now will dig up something that I created. Not really that big of a surprise. Yeah, I was chuckling because it's basically kind of like, you know, uh, we, we talked about this exactly, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. I don't think, for some reason, that Professor Radium was going to be the villain in the next Batman movie, we'll say. I mean, I'm not saying these, these guys are worthless, but, like, we've not seen... We, they disappeared, you know? I think that just to bring them back is one thing. I, I would be interested if they were actually going to be, um, I don't know, some stories along along with them, as opposed to them just kind of showing up and saying, hey, Penguin, protect me from us. You don't know what we're about, but uh, I suppose only time will tell. Yeah, I like the idea of Tony Daniel bringing his own characters back, as long as they're more interesting characters than people like Catgirl, for example. I I think Tony Daniel strikes me as the sort of writer who, you know, throws a lot of stuff out there and then hopes that it will kind of, yeah, stick in the Batman universe and people go back to. But uh, it hasn't happened yet. 
I guess that's really every writer's hope, though, in the end, is that they'll have a great character like Joker or something that will be memorable. But I don't think we've seen it yet, but we can we can only hope that years from now we'll look upon one of Tony Daniels' characters and remember when. All right, so then moving right along, the next interview we have is from May 10th. Peter Tomasi talked with Newsarama about some of the upcoming events that are going to be playing out to Batman and Robin. So for this interview, I will read for Newsarama, and Joe will read for Peter Tomasi. What did Damien mean by saying, protect our castle and our kingdom? Is that simply a boy's view of the mantle they carry, or was it related more to the triumph of the House of Wayne over the House of Ducard? It was a combination of both, actually. And also, in that moment of extreme duress, I used it to peek into Damien's psyche a bit, to show that there is a part of him that considers himself a boy, warrior, poet, king, due to the way he was raised by his mother, Talia, who saw him as a sort of Alexander the Great. You made it clear in our past interviews that you wanted the relationship between Bruce and Damien to be the main dramatic focus of this comic, which was obviously the case in this first storyline. Will that continue to be the central theme going forward? Yes, it will. But I'll also be escalating the action scenes in the upcoming issues and placing Batman and Robin into some intense situations that will showcase their relationship in a big way. We talked a little bit before about how much Bruce's experience with the other Robins has influenced his relationship with Damien, but we'll find out more about Damien's relationship with the other Robins in issue number 10. Who's involved in that issue and what can you tell us about the premise? Issue 10's got our usual cast of characters, along with Nightwing, Red Robin and Red Hood. The premise is about a character called Terminus, who wants to inflict some special pain on Batman and Gotham, while the interaction between the former Robins is based on Damien wanting to prove something to them. Issue number 11 solicitations indicated Damien isn't exactly friends with the former Robins. Is it safe to say that Jason Todd and Damien are at odds in that issue? Damien's most definitely not friends with the other former Robins, especially Jason and Tim. I would say that he has respect for Grayson, since they spent some time together as a dynamic duo. Damien's out to prove that he's the best Robin, not only physically, but mentally, and he's prepared to make them jump through his own hoops. Will this Robin's storyline continue for a while? This Robin aspect of the story is on the table for issues 10 and 11, along with some of 12. It's not the uber story, per se, but it's a piece of the big picture that I'm constructing to delve into how Damien sees himself in relationship to the other members of the Bat family, and what his role slash place in it is. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. I'm looking forward to this this Robin storyline that's coming up with Damien interacting with all the previous Robins. I think it'll be interesting just based off the covers alone. I think it's going to be interesting because it basically seems like they're all at odds with each other. And I think the big conflict is going to be Damien versus Tim. Yeah, I, I was glad that he said that, you know, oh, he at least respects Dick Grayson. Because ever since the issue two, we've seen Dick and Damien kind of work together. I don't want to say regularly, but like we have seen them together enough times. We've seen them in Dark Knight. We saw them in Batwing. And for all intents and purposes, I got the impression that like the respect he earned for Dick at the end of pre-Flashpoint completely carried over. I'm hoping that he that whatever resentment he has towards Tim isn't as bad as it was like when they first met. I'm, I'm afraid it might be because Peter Tomasi, we, we said before that Peter Tomasi likes to anchor, tries to play with the extreme emotion. I'm hoping that he's going to like not go for that, go for the easy route. I fear I'm wrong. But uh, it is, I like interactions between Robin, so this will be interesting to see play out. Uh, I was really interested in what he said in the first question, just to kind of get insight as to what Damien was thinking when he said about the kingdom. Because when I first read it, I guess in the mindset of a Christian, I had kind of thought about this idea of everyone kind of has their own set kingdom. (laughs) 
that, you know, they rule over and everything. I mean, until we get to obviously the, the greater kingdom beyond. But I, I kind of saw it as him talking about, you know, this is our kind of our sphere of influence here. And so we have to take care of it. But I guess it, it makes more sense in what he was talking about there. But I like to think that there probably could have been that other side of it as well. All right. So moving on to the last bit of news on May 11th, Adam Beechin talked to Comic Resources about Batman Beyond. The interview was actually a three-part interview with all of the writers talking about their part in the Beyond universe. But specifically, we're going to talk about the Batman stuff. And for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources and Stella will read for Adam Beechin. As always with the Beyond World, you're writing the story of two Batman. What would you say are the biggest personal challenges for both Terry and Bruce in this new year of the series? For Terry, it's reconciling his superhero life with his personal life. Dana's pretty much cut him loose over his flaky behavior, always disappearing when she either needs him or they have plans. He knows he's not spending enough time with his mother and brother either. Terry's starting to think about what he wants and needs his priorities to be going forward in his life. I don't think he has the same burning vengeance motor that drove Bruce for so many decades and still drives him in many ways. For the first little while, for Terry, putting on the costume, flying, using gadgets, and punching bad guys was a lot of fun. But does Terry picture himself doing this at the age of 30? 50? For Bruce, his big personal challenge in the first year of the series is a lot more immediate, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Like in the past, you've been working to find a good balance between the, the animated continuity and elements from the comic. Reference to Barbara Gordon's paralysis sticks out most recently. How will those elements grow now that you're introducing Tim Drake as the Wayne computer expert and Lucius Fox Jr. to the mix? Tim in particular will play a major role going forward, and Lucius will probably have his moments as well. Like you say, it's a bit of a high-wire act, wanting to give longtime fans the old villains they remember from the animated series, wanting to give longtime Batman comics fans nuggets from the comics past, and wanting to give all of the readers, including ones brand new to Batman in any way, easy-to-digest explanatory material that still expands and deepens the mix. I get a lot of requests for villains to appear, whether they're from the cartoon or the comics, and all I can say is, all in good time. The great thing about the Batman The Beyond universe is that it was set up so beautifully in the cartoon, but so much of it was left unexplored. I know Norm Brayfogle and I, Dustin and Derek, and JT and Howard are anxious to do that exploring, and all kinds of characters, new and old, will pop up as an organic result of that exploration. Of course, the major thread running through the book right now is the story of Dana's Joker brother, Douglas, and his schemes to be the top clown in Gotham. While Terry has faced down a lot of Jokers over the course of the franchise, it seems he's never had a real personal enemy amongst those gangs. Was giving him his own clown prince to clash with part of the inspiration here? Absolutely. In my opinion, you can't do a Batman story without a Joker. And the challenge has been to bring a Joker-worthy villain into the story without making it the Joker himself. Because that was already done brilliantly as part of the animated series. I think we found an interesting angle from which to think about the Jokers and make them genuinely scary in their own way and legitimate threats. As for Doug, da, 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 da. as for Doug, as for Doug wanting to be the top clown in Gotham, he already is. The question is, what's he going to do now that he's there? And that's what Ten Thousand Clowns is all about. All right, so that's the end of that interview. The thing I'm most looking forward to is Tim Drake playing a larger role. I think it's great that he's going to play a larger role, especially for those of us who know the future of. Well, I guess the past of the Batman Beyond universe where Tim Drake has a falling out with Batman because of an encounter with 
the Joker. I want to see some of that stuff come out, and I know that by involving Tim Drake, we're going to see more hints of the past, or at least references to the past that will probably even expand more on the Batman Beyond uh, Return of the Joker film. I'm really interested about this part that just Terry, and we've seen that Terry is his own person and he has similar desires to Bruce, but really he he's still a teen and I think it'll be good to really explore the side that maybe he's not going to be Batman for the, you know, for the long term or what's going to win out his desire to be with Dana and his family or to serve the city. But I guess in the end, he has to come back if we're, we're staying tied to the DC animated universe because of that one episode that goes how many years in the future? I don't know. It was like 30, I think, when he was kind of older. But yeah, it'll just be interesting to, to see. I always like seeing the other side of their lives and, and how that ties in. All right. So that is all of our news. Let's get right into our comic book reviews and start off with Batgirl number nine. If I may, I would just like to start off with a, a brief news story that I found while on the interwebs. And it was actually about these bombs. I was just going to do like a little snippet of it to give a little thing. But the Reverend Archie Mitchell was on an outing with his pregnant wife, Elsie, when five local youngsters, when they found the odd looking balloon. As Elsie and the children examined the balloon, it exploded, killing all six of them. And this happened on May 5th, 1945. I had heard of Japanese balloons, so I shouted a warning not to touch it. But then there was a big explosion. I ran up there and they were all dead. So in a little known 1944 Fugo campaign, Japan released between 9,000 and 10,000 bomb-laden balloons that floated across the Pacific and were intended to explode in America, causing forest fires and panic. Each balloon was armed with a 15-kilogram anti-personnel bomb and four 4.5-kilogram incendiaries, as well as a flash bomb to destroy evidence of the devices. And then just this final part. Japan said it was in retaliation for the 1942 U.S. Doolittle Raid in which American pilots bombed key targets in Tokyo under cover of darkness from aircraft carriers in the Pacific. So I just wanted to read that to, to kind of give you framework for some of these past scenes that go on here. So Batgirl number nine, Night of the Owls in the Line of Fire. Writer Gail Simone, pencil Ardian Sioff, inker Vicente Cifuentes, colorist Ulysses Ariola. Japan, November 1944. A little girl, Ayumi, writes a letter to her parents as she prepares a fugo, balloons carrying a bomb which will cross the ocean to the United States. Gotham City Outskirts, 1946. A representative for the Court of Owls that looks eerily like Bruce Wayne comes to Haley Circus looking for an aerialist for the court. Mary doesn't speak and her face is greatly bandaged as her family was killed in the paper balloon bomb attack in Oregon during the war. The circus picked her up, though many of the people are frightened of her. The representative for the owls is disgusted at Haley's treatment of the girl and tells Mary that she will now have a nest of her own and no need for her bandages because she will have a new one. Present day. Batgirl is in front of a fiery blaze with a female talon coming after her. They are fighting atop a burning building in Little Jakarta, home of Gotham's long-standing Indonesian community. An explosion came out of nowhere and witnesses say they saw a balloon carrying a bomb. Batgirl is clearly outgunned in this match and clings to the side of the building, hoping for a wing and a prayer. The talent has a Cassandra Kane moment, touches Batgirl's cowl, and disappears. Bewildered, Batgirl pulls herself up from the building and examines a scrap of yellowed paper she snatched from the talent. 
Elsewhere, Gordon is walking the streets in front of GCPD when a kind stranger tells him he dropped something. Gordon bends to pick it up, what turns out to be a coin with an owl on it. The stranger threatens his daughter and him in the same breath, telling him of a small fireworks display that will be at the ready should he doubt the threats. Several prominent Gotham citizens will die tonight with nothing to prevent it. There will be no savior. No one can be warned. He will be watched, and he is under no circumstances supposed to light the signal for Batman. He needs to be a father, or everything close to him will burn. Later in the office, Gordon learns that there was an explosion in the Indonesian grid. Later, Babs arrives at her apartment with no Elysia. Babs uses some frozen peas to soothe her chin and examines the decades-old paper she retrieved, scrawled in kanji with November 1944. She has a bad feeling. Back at GCPD, Detective McKenna lets Gordon know about the current events in Batman and Robin. Back with Bat, which you'll hear a later audience. Back with Babs, she sniffs the mulberry paper and narrates the history of the Fugo. Back with the commish, he receives multiple reports of different Gotham leaders winding up dead. Gordon calls his daughter, but the stranger intercepts the call and warns him again. Outside the GCPD, many balloons are dropping. Batgirl receives Alfred's distress call. Gordon tells McKenna to get people inside to the holding cells and to send a car to get Barbara. And Gordon plans on lighting the signal because people need to believe that someone's out there who still answers the call. Or else the city will fall and never get up again. After the explosion at GCPD, Batgirl worries about her father for five seconds, but is distracted by the talent she encountered before and goes to the rooftop for round two. With bombs exploding around them, Gordon races to the signal, and Babs flies between the balloons like a sea of jellyfish. Batgirl gets in some hits, but is outmatched, loses some locks of hair. Hey, catch it, Nightwing, catch it. And is about (laughs) to topple over another building before she catches a Talon off balance and throws her into a balloon. The Talon is still alive at the bottom, and Batgirl asks why she didn't kill her at the site of the first explosion. The Talon, Mary the Mute Girl we met at Haley Circus, scrawls in her blood, I have mask too, I understand. Meanwhile, Gordon turns on the signal, and amid the floating balloons of destruction, not a bat, but an owl appears. The stranger used Gordon, and now it seems that Gotham is lost, as the little girl's letter from Nagasaki, Japan, closes out the issue. Next up, Nightfall. Right, Batgirl number nine. Here's the thing. This is, to me, it was almost as if I was reading a completely different writer when I read this compared to last month's issue. I mean, obviously, the history element, the bombs from Japan playing into the story, you know, and how it connects to the present story with the Night of Owls was very interesting. At the same time... I still have to wonder how much of these issues that connect into Night of Owls are the writer's ideas and not somebody else's ideas. Now, if Gail Simone came up with this idea and she ran with it and she did this, you know, props to her for doing that because I thought this was a good story. Mm -hmm. Tying the history into the bombs to basically what caused this, this girl to get scarred beyond belief and for her to actually somehow, because of that, come to the circus and then in turn get pulled into the Night of Owls was very interesting. I did like the idea that, you know, unfortunately for James Gordon, the Court of Owls knew exactly how he was going to operate and they knew exactly what he was going to do and ended up causing him to actually turn on the signal that had the owl symbol in the sky instead of the bat signal in the sky. The other interesting thing was when the Talon dies or is dying, she actually writes on the ground that she understands she has a mask too. That was kind of heartwarming because it was kind of like she doesn't necessarily want to do what she was doing, but 
that's what she's supposed to do, so that's why she's doing it. The other bit that I really enjoyed was the fact that, for some reason, this issue, more so than any of the other issues that we're going to review, had a lot of tie, not ties, but references to what was happening in the other issues. As if Gail Simone actually took the time to go through and talk to all of the other writers and say, hey, so what are you doing? What are you doing? So that way she could incorporate what was going on in the other books in her book, even if it was just in passing through a mention, she still did it to basically tie it together without having it to actually tie together. I thought this was a good issue. I thought the art was really good. You know, surprise, surprise, Batgirl for once, I'm going to give it four out of five batterings. <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't nearly as bad as the last issue. I think that goes without saying. I'm of two minds, which will be illustrated in my, in my score. I thought that the, <laughs> I'm trying to say anywhere besides history, but the history elements concerning the Nakasaki bombing and tying that into the history of the Court of Owls was actually kind of a clever idea. I thought that it was, it served as sort of a nice beginning and ending for the story to sort of a kind of like bring it all together. Although, and I, I kind of don't want to, criticize as much as we want to because it feels as though i don't think what i'm gonna say I don't, I don't think this is like technically bad this is just sort of like my preference i did not like how gail simone wrote the opening and beginning sequences and i mean it just again this might, might be me it might be because it's gail simone and i had an aversion to it or something but like it felt very stilted and stupid i mean like, i didn't like how like the little girl at the beginning like her voice it felt really really like kind of phony like someone who thought how a, a 40s Japanese girl might write. But that's just me. That's just me. I'm just saying how I kind of felt when I was reading it. Similarly, what I did like about this issue was that there was this big sense of urgency that's going on throughout the, in all the bat books during Night of Owls. And it was felt here. The sky is red. I like the guy threatening Gordon at the top of the rooftop. I thought it was cool. I liked the fact that they chilled him with the Night of Owls signal as opposed to the bat signal. I actually thought that was really funny and, and really good of him to do that. And I thought the art was pretty solid all throughout. I don't like most of the scenes that Batgirl is in. I just don't like her voice. Probably because, I mean, I, I could go into, like, you know, why this doesn't make sense or why this doesn't make sense, but that's not really relevant. I just don't like, I don't know, like, it's just some things like where she says, I have a most unpleasant idea, and she's being serious. It just kind of rings weird to me. Also, it is, this is also something that I think is a little bit unfortunate with, like, the Night of Owls crossover. Because this is, like, the fourth villain Barbara's gone up against that just kicks her butt all around. And she's like, oh, she's so strong. Now, granted, that's true for everybody in every title. And that's true for the Nine of Owls. But contrasting it with like the fact that Barbara can't seem to catch a break when she's going up against bad guys after she was said to have like really strong upper body strength. It's just sort of, you know, I just kind of have to, you know, roll my eyes like, again, really. But again, that's not really Gil Simone's fault. That's sort of like the happenstance with the story. This was decent. I thought this was all right. I have my problems with it, but my problems weren't really reflective of like what went wrong with the story. Although I will say, I kind of had a problem with Barbara kind of just like giving up and trying to kill the owl. I think that by that time she was aware that, I forgot whether she was aware or not that they couldn't really be killed. But when she kicks the owl over the, the rooftop, she has, no, she has no choice. She's like, oh God, forgive me. I killed this person. But the way the scene played out, it was sort of like, Oh, I'm getting beat up. Okay, I give up. You die. And like, she was like, why is she dead? It, 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 it was really w weirdly written for me. I didn't really buy it. I'm not going to harp on this too much. Middle of the road, two and a half out of five better ranks. That's what I thought the art was one of the stronger issues for this series. I know it's always been fairly inconsistent, but this was definitely one of the better. There were some odd pages, particularly in some of the Japanese girls and the opening scene looked very odd. 
And yeah, that character does look extraordinary like Bruce Wayne, which is a bit yeah. Bruce Wayne with guy liner, I think. Oh god! But uh, Richard. yeah, surprisingly strong issue and good surprising things like Commissioner Gordon turning on the the bat symbol and having the the owl symbol there. We see that in other books, but we don't see Gordon actually turning it on. And hopefully, we don't see that in any other books because then it's you know it's, it all. It makes the story more complete if you read them all, which obviously we're doing. And that makes it feel worth it, reading all of these titles. And it does fill out the story more. Like, you'll see that in another book, that in the sky. But then in this, it's explained why it's there. And I really like that. There were a few things which I thought were a bit odd. Like, I really didn't get the scene where she just got peas out of the freezer and just put them on her chin. I didn't know what was going on there. I thought she'd pulled the note out of the peas the first time I saw it. (laughs) <laughs> and someone had snuck them into a freezer. I wasn't keen on the scene where she kills the Talon and then she writes in her own blood, which looks like blood instead of the kind of anti-freeze thing we're used to. I have mask too, I understand. That was like a stage up from Lolcats instead of like, I can has mask. <laughs> I don't feel heartwarming. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm just a bit more cynical, and, but I don't, I don't feel that yeah, all her life she would have been trained to be this talent. And if she really was that desperate to go against them, there's nothing stopping her from just not you know, complying with their orders. I mean, what are they going to do? She's invincible. All they can do is freeze her again. I think this is working well, this series so far, like, you know, this crossover, having all of these books tie in. I think it was... A decent issue. I hope this kind of level of writing, although some of it feels a little bit forced, I think it's because it was a more serious issue. But I hope this level of writing stays because I'd rather have this than the kind of cheesy kind of phoned in stuff that we've been treated to so far. I'll also give this two and a half out of five better rings. It was decent, but still not the best issue. Times, they are changing, my friends. I am really uh, siding with Dustin on this <laughs> this issue. And I'm just in, I don't know, full agreement with him on, on many issues. I don't know if I'd necessarily say it was heartwarming, kind of that end scene. But I do really feel like this talent, as opposed to many of the talents we've met, I think it really evokes sympathy for this particular person. I mean, many of the talents... You know, we've seen a history and it gives depth to the character. But, you know, many we don't. We just really see them as a villain. We don't really care too much about them. But I I think this one just, I mean, yeah, it kind of really pulls your heartstrings a little bit. You know, not only seeing her as a child and having this, this traumatic event happen to her, but then, you know, she's sympathetic to our hero. And then we see that, hey you know, she she can kind of relate to her. And I don't know if this is just the writing that made this, but in my mind, this talent reminded me so much of Cassandra Kane. And I don't know if that's why I was so biased. The Cassandra Kane in the beginning, I guess I should say, when she was mute and everything, it just so reminded me of of that character and her relating to Barbara and everything. I don't know. That that could just be me. Don may get really upset with me saying that, but I guess that's what happens. I think my main issue with this story is that there was just no lead up to the story. This was probably one of the better, if not the best, Batgirl issues that we've seen so far. But we were just kind of thrown into it. You know, we we're forced to endure grotesque. And then here we are. And there was really no lead up to it. And I felt like I missed something. But I kind of just, you know, went with it. But I think that was the big pitfall there. 
I would have liked more of a connection between the two past stories, you know, more than just some sort of tenuous thread. We meet this girl in Japan, Ayumi, and you feel a connection with her and her feeling of national pride or her separation from her family. And I actually did. I didn't think the writing of the letter was forced. I actually did. You know, I was reading it and I thought, wow, this does not seem like Simone. And for me, I'm one of those bitter people. So I guess you have two bitter people on two different sides of that. And then you meet Mary. You know, a young girl, she's separated from her family. She has pride for the circus. She takes pride in her work. Her life is destroyed by this balloon that Ayumi made. And in the end, it you know, it almost appears as if Mary was indeed Asian. But that just may have been the drawing style that they did there. And I guess I just would have wanted Ayumi's story to have more of an impact on the story as a whole instead of like... Joe brought up and Dustin as well. You know, it was just like this beginning and this end. So it's basically a binding of this girl. And yes, she's from Nagasaki. So you see that what she did ends up having an impact on her because of the H-bomb. But it doesn't really impact the inner parts of the story. I was trying to think of a connection between Night of the Owls and World War II because a lot of these talents, their pasts, have something to do with, you know, the current situation in a way. And, you know, is it the fact that there is such an attack on home turf by outside forces? You know, the owls attacking Gotham, is that like the Japanese sending these balloons to the U.S.? I don't know if that's just grasping at straws and they just picked out a particular way of connecting them. Who knows? I did wonder why Mary would use the one thing that she probably hates the most. Why, you know, her life was based destroyed by these balloons carrying the bombs and why use them my only thought is you know is she using them because she is targeting the indonesian community and is this a way to give you know the japanese a taste of their own medicine or just you know the asian population a taste of their own medicine i don't know but it's interesting that that action makes her out to be sort of this evil creature and then you see her at the end. So we have this sort of dichotomy of this character and it's it's hard to figure out. But unlike the other villains that we've seen in this book, I kind of want to know more about this particular talent. I don't know what it is about this particular talent. Is it because she's like Cassandra Kane? But I kind of like this villain. I guess I do have more to talk about, but I'll just end with sort of the sympathy that I think we see throughout this this issue. The Talons are these unsympathetic creatures. I mean, they're basically zombies. You know, they get hit, they get stabbed, and they get back up again. They're not really feeling in every sense of that word, but we have a sympathetic Talon. And then what about this stranger that we see accosting Gordon? Is it the same owl representative that visits Haley? You know, we see what the court did to Ronnie and Nightwing. Remember, they sucked that guy in a chokey. They made him climb barbed wires naked. But then we see this guy that visits Haley's circus, and he's showing care and concern for for young Mary, which I thought, oh, this is interesting. And I also wondered why this stranger that, that comes up to Gordon, why doesn't he kill him instead of using him as a pawn? Wasn't Gordon also on that list of people, officials that were supposed to be killed? I I think Alfred mentions his name. And couldn't the owls have just lit the signal themselves? Or was it just more tragically poignant to have Gordon White the doom for Gotham himself? I just have a lot of questions, I guess. And it's not like the bad, like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Why isn't it answered? But this issue, I like it because it makes me ask these questions and it makes me want to look deeper and what is going on in this issue. And thank you, Gil Simone. I don't know if it was you. I'm I'm right there with Dustin. Was it 
Gail Simone that sort of had this freedom for once because perhaps she's feeling constrained by editorial mandates. Did she actually have freedom for once or did Scott Snyder add a lot? And for whatever reason, this issue feels greatly changed from everything else. I can only hope that it will continue, but I'm afraid that it will not. But I don't know. It was a good issue. I I give this 3.5 batterings out of 5, but it's still... Uh, above and beyond, I think, one of the, the best issues that's come out in this series. So thank you very much. All right. So that's going to give Batgirl number nine a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next title, Batman number nine. I won't bury you. I've buried enough members of the Wayne family. Batman number nine, written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Capullo. The issue starts off where we left off in the last issue, where we see Batman fighting against the Talons inside the Batcave in his suit, and he's yelling at Alfred to get the temperature down quicker in the Batcave so that he can fight them. As this is happening, we actually had a little bit of a backstory about how back in the day when uh, the Waynes first bought Wayne Manor, before obviously it was called Wayne Manor, they had a problem where they couldn't move in for two months, and it was because there was a cavern below the house that was filled with bats, so that the only way that they got rid of them was to bring in owls to take care of the bat infestation. So uh, as time progressed, the owls actually got rid of the bats, and they were able to move in, but later on down the road, what ended up happening was the bats you know, eventually returned once the owls were gone. So, sticking with the the main story, uh, the Talons slowly start to overpower Batman, even though Batman realizes that he can play dirty and, you know, be a little bit more gruesome with his way of taking these Talons down. And he gets taken down, and the Talons are making snide remarks about how his parlor tricks aren't going to stop him, and even one Talon takes a sword and shoves it through the, the face mask of this bat suit that he has on, and almost hits his eye. As this is happening, the T-Rex actually stomps a couple of the Talons, and Alfred tries to go and help Bruce, but as it turns out, what ends up happening is Bruce actually locks Alfred in the room and overrides the security so that Alfred can't get out. Meanwhile, the Batcave becomes so cold that what ends up happening is the bats, they actually come back in full force and start swarming and biting the crap out of the Talons, and Batman is able to get free. He notices that one's trying to escape, and as he sees him, he jumps in the Batmobile and runs him over with his car. We then see him mention that he's going to head towards Arkham Asylum to take care of Jeremiah at Arkham, mentioning what's going to happen in Detective Comics number 9, which we'll get to later. But then we skip ahead, and then he goes after Lincoln March, and as he gets to Lincoln March's apartment, he gets there, and Lincoln March shoots a bullet, and the bullet actually hits a Talon, and the Talon is laying there, slumped over, and Batman looks over at Lincoln March to see that he has a knife stuck through his chest. Lincoln March tells Batman that he has to deliver a message to Bruce Wayne, that he got very close to who the Court of Owls were, and that was one of the reasons he was being taken out, besides the fact that he was trying to make Gotham a good place. As that happens, Lincoln March actually dies, and Batman says that he is going to bring the war to them next. We then go to the backup, which is a story of Jarvis Pennyworth writing a letter to his son Alfred, 
talking about how Alfred never ever will come to Wayne Manor because there's there's hidden secrets that nobody knows about inside of the Wayne Manor and he doesn't want his son to be corrupted by them. As he's trying to leave Wayne Manor, it turns out someone's watching him the entire time and there's a problem with the gate. After he fixes the gate, we see a little bit of a flashback where Jarvis is talking about how he's been working with Thomas and Martha Wayne and raising their son, Bruce, kind of prepping Bruce for what would be assumed that Alfred would take over for his father once his father is no longer around. Meanwhile, Martha Wayne makes a comment about how some of the schools are being shut down because the mayor is corrupt and they refuse to pay him off. Martha makes a comment about, we need to do more. Do you think it's time for us to venture out of the nest? Jarvis says, a fine idea, ma'am. And as we see, his thoughts are that that was a bad idea. Back in the present time of the story, Jarvis is trying to escape and the gate slams shut and he crashes into it. As he looks out his window, there is a Talon standing there looking as if he's going to kill Jarvis. And that is Batman number nine. Alright, Batman number nine. First off, I want to start with the backup feature, even though it was the second half of the book, just because I thought it was kind of interesting, kind of pointed to a specific direction that I think is actually supposed to be trying to throw us off the actual beat of who the Court of Owls are. After this issue came out, I remember reading some things online about how oh, well, maybe the Court of Owls is ran by Martha Wayne, and Martha Wayne's not actually dead. and Or maybe she is dead, but she was the one who was running the Court of Owls to begin with. Or maybe she was that talent who was going after Jarvis at the end of the, the back. You know, lots of really crazy ideas out there. I don't think... I think this is kind of like meant to kind of throw us off. I think the whole point of her saying Venture Outside of the Nest is that I think at this point the Waynes were a very secluded family, specifically because they were trying not to be like their ancestors and you know trying to rule Gotham, essentially. And I think they were trying to, you know, just live secluded lives, raise their son, and have a happy life. And the problem was, I think what happened is there was so much corruption happening in Gotham yet again that they, were, they, you know, they wanted to do something about it. And it kind of plays into the philanthropy that Thomas Wayne was known for before he died. And things like that, and I think that plays into it, because even this story takes place probably six years before they die, so that's that's my assumption there. I think, ultimately, the point of the backup is to partially throw us off, but also to let us know that the talents have been around in the Wayne family for generations, and this isn't the first time they've popped up. All right, so moving on to the main story... I thought the the little history lesson about the original Waynes that bought the mansion and how they couldn't move in because there was a problem with bats and they had to bring in owls to get rid of the bats. I thought that was kind of cool, especially how it played into the actual story where Batman is actually banking on the fact bats are going to come out of the deep, deep caverns when the temperature gets so low. They're actually going to come out and they're going to in turn attack those towns. I thought that was kind of interesting. I think the bit about Lincoln March is kind of a letdown because for a character that was so prominent in the first few issues of Batman, just to get stabbed by a talent, I didn't see that coming. I had no idea that that was going to happen. I was quite surprised because I really thought this Lincoln March character was going to play a bigger role. Not necessarily that he was part of the Court of Owls, but more so of he was going to play a bigger role in the revitalization of Gotham City because I thought that was something that they were really going to start to try to do. It is interesting to know, though, that Lincoln Marge was actually doing his own research to find out who the Court of Owls were 
before the Talons actually attacked. What brought him to discover the Court of Owls was real? What brought him to realize that they were a real threat that needed to be dealt with? What brought him to the realization that there was an evil force that nobody else knew about? These are questions that I want to get answered. I'm sure they will be answered because Scott Snyder tends to answer all of the questions that we ask, at least by the time the story arc is over. I think the other interesting thing was the fact that, to me, there's a little bit of an off thing where Bruce escapes from the Batcave after the bats take out the talents. He escapes and he asks Alfred, okay, who's left who hasn't been saved? And Alfred says, well, there's a lot of people who have died, but so far the only ones that aren't accounted for are Jeremiah Arkham and Lincoln March. So what does Batman do? He says, okay, well, I'm going to go get Jeremiah Arkham. I'm going to go do that first, and then I'll go get Lincoln March. Jeremiah Arkham is in a prison. Lincoln March is out in the open, not in the prison, doesn't have a security detail, doesn't have armed guards, doesn't have any of that. In my mind, I don't know why Batman would say that Jeremiah Arkham is a more key citizen to keep safe than somebody like Lincoln March. Especially since the fact that Jeremiah Arkham, not that long ago, was trouting around Gotham City as Black Mask, and should actually be locked up inside of Arkham Asylum, not running Arkham Asylum. And I'll talk more about that when we get to Detective Comics, but I just, I don't know that that was the right idea of, oh yeah, let's go after Jeremiah Arkham instead of Lincoln March. Do you think Batman had ulterior motives for that? I I mean, that's a possibility. I mean, the thing that I, I mean, because of the timestamps, we can see that there's almost a three-hour time frame between the time that he goes after Jeremiah Arkham and he goes to get Lincoln March. And my only question is, so it takes him three hours, and in that three hours, how can he not question himself and saying, only if I went after Lincoln March instead of Jeremiah Arkham, I might have saved him. Or, hey, only if I didn't do all the unnecessary things that I did in Detective Comics, could I have <laughs> saved Lincoln March. Maybe it's because Snyder, Snyder had it in his outline that spoilers, March dies, and that he needed a reason for Batman to not save him, and maybe that's why they brought Daniel on the book to begin with. That's a possibility. Too. Or maybe Batman feels guilty about dating Mayor Hades' daughter and supporting Lincoln March, so he thinks, well, if March is out of the picture, then I won't have anything to feel guilty about. <laughs> sure. The other possibility, I think, is that originally it wasn't written as if Lincoln March was the one who revealed that he was doing research or he investigated the court of owls. I think, I think originally the story was, had nothing to do with Jeremiah Arkham because Tony Daniel wasn't going to be doing night of owls. So that whole part wouldn't have even existed. You know, the thought that you mentioned Don about how maybe the whole idea was that there needed to be a reason why Lincoln March dies. And Tony Daniel then came in because having Jeremiah Arkham was actually the reason why he died. And that's a possibility, but the other possibility would be the reverse, where the original intent was not for Lincoln March to die, and he was supposed to get saved, and because Tony Daniel came on the book and wanted to do Jeremiah Arkham, and Batman saving Jeremiah Arkham or whatever, Snyder tweaked his story to not necessarily, you know, he could have been saving somebody else instead of Lincoln March, and he just got there too late, and then that same person could have had it. I just feel like Lincoln March, the last time we saw him, he was seeing a hospital bed recovering from the fight with the current talent with Bruce Wayne and Lincoln March in the town. 
and there was that fight that was happening that I can't see this character that Snyder spent so much time on in the beginning of the series just falling flat and saying, okay, this is it. He just has a piece of paper that has to get to Bruce Wayne, and he dies. I feel like there was something different going on there. But, I mean, that might be something we might have to ask Scott Snyder the next time we see. But then, do you really think Scott Snyder was changed his whole story for Tony Daniel? I don't think that was the case. I think it was the case of maybe they decided to, maybe editorial decided that Lincoln March was not going to, maybe the whole Gotham revitalization thing isn't something they want to keep going on with, and the only way it was going to happen was if Lincoln March became mayor. Yeah, maybe. So overall, I think the main story was good. The backup story was good. I think the whole point of the backup story was to throw people off. Meanwhile, the main story was surprisingly less there was a lot less going on compared to the other Night of Owls books that have come out so far. I think this was just kind of like a, hey, this is happening in our book too, but we're really going to give the spotlight to the other books this month because we don't want to overdo the Night of Owls. I just got that impression. So I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. Try to gather my thoughts here. I like this issue. I really like the first half, this fight in the Batcave, because... Lately, whenever whenever comics do, like, these big, you know, like, everything is going to hell, you know, like, this is the most dangerous, dire situation ever, they tell you that, but they don't really, they don't really like, uh, you don't really get the sense of that. Like, like right now, Spider-Man, you know, is a prime example of that. This is the worst situation ever, but you don't really feel it. The opening shot of Batman battling all these talents in the Batcave, right where he lives, you know, that is how you, that's, that's how you do it, because it's like, okay, these hours are going after all the people in Gotham City, you know, and, like, the, the Bat families try to contain them. Batman, the head guy, is going to be taking all these guys on, you know, at his very weakest. That is how you present a dire situation, so I like that. Similarly, I like how the fight resolved itself. Although, and I'm sure other guys, you other guys are going to, like, agree with this. When he says, huh, I might, I might have a guard dog after all. I thought that Titus from Batman and Robin would come in, but apparently not. Oh, me too. No, yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> I, I, I could have sworn, like, oh, here we go. That's nice continuity. But, oh, no, it's, it's the robotic dinosaur, which was cool, too, and it works. <laughs> But I, I just thought that, you know, like, that would have been a prime opportunity because he has a guard dog. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I, like, I like this issue. It's sort of like last issue where I like it. it was a lot more of action and less sort of building up. I think we're past the point where we're learning about the owls and now we're just trying to stop them. And I like how it's moving along. I really like that just Snyder paces these issues very well. I agree that the Lincoln Marsh scene was a, almost like a bit of an afterthought. I don't really mind that he died. Although, you know, he could be still alive, you know, now with these guys. He could be reanimated to be another talent. Oh, boy. Bite your tongue. Ow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although, speaking of which, he shoots the talent that's behind the door. But I thought talents didn't die. Never mind. I, I, I just thought about that as we were recapping this. Overall, the main story I liked quite a bit. It was a fun action story. It was intense. It was kind of creepy. And it makes me want to know how they're going to get out of this, this uh, situation. The backup story... I thought it was well written. I thought it was well illustrated. I don't like them messing with the Waynes in the way that they are. I don't mind, you know, the fact that we're seeing Jarvis Pennyworth, Alfred's father, and him writing to his son. I, I think it's pretty cool. But and I suppose this was inevitable, but I really I'm grinding my teeth at the thought that like the whole talents thing with the Waynes began way back when they were still alive. I know I said this before but in a past episode, I do not care for any sort of mucking around with Batman's origin. I, pr- I prefer it to be, you know, just a, a kid, son of rich parents who watched him die in a botched monkey. 
And I don't want, I really don't want this Batman's origin to be linked to the Nine of Owls in any shape or form. I don't want them to be killed by an owl. I don't want them to be at the theater because of an owl. I just want this to be completely far removed. And I'm just hoping that Snyder's smart enough not to do that because it's looking that way now. And because of that, I didn't like it. Although it was well written, four out of five batterings. I thought the main story was excellent. One of my favorite. I, I seem to be saying that every issue now, but I think it's one of my favorite issues of the series so far. I thought it was really well paced. I think you really get the sense that this is happening in one night. I mean, it's it's a carry on from the last issue, admittedly, but whilst it's it's kind of fast, so like a lot's happening in one night, but it's you know it's not like uh, too much. It's not too dense the book, and uh, I enjoy that. I, I like the carrying on from the last issue with, in the Batcave. I thought the dinosaur was ridiculous. <laughs> in a bad way or a good way? I'm not sure. Okay. I know it was originally animatronic, wasn't it? But I don't think I've ever seen it move before. And there was definitely no remote controlling going on. But It's alive. <laughs> Greg Capullo can really draw bats. Yeah, I really like the issue. I think it was uh, exciting. I noticed as well as Donovan that why is the Talon supposedly dead after Lincoln March shot him? It looks like there's a huge pool of blood creeping towards them in that scene where Lincoln March is on the floor, but I would have thought he would generate faster than that unless he's going to be uh, creeping up behind Batman and start the next issue. I thought the issue was really well drawn. There's still a couple of pages. I, I really like the page where... We see Batman entering Lincoln March's office and we see sort of half of Lincoln March's face and him firing the gun. Although it is a little bit confusing at times, some of the art, that was one, it just, you know, the way that the panels overlap. As for the backup story, I am, I agree with Donovan again that I don't like them messing too much with the origins. I know that's kind of a pretty fanboy thing to say, but I've always liked the idea that Alfred has always been there for Bruce and that he was the one who brought him up and now having Jarvis there when Bruce was a child I think it takes away from from Alfred being a father figure because it almost makes him the same age doesn't it I mean I'm not really it's... like it yeah there, there are conflicting accounts whether he was there when he was before he was born or after he was born that's what you're saying I mean obviously Alfred's older but I mean he's definitely it seems younger if Jarvis was still the butler than he appears and like I said I think it takes away from the the kind of father figure aspect where he's always brought him up and always been in his life I did think that the backup issue was well-written and well-drawn. I thought it started off a bit like a painterly Trevor McCarthy. But no, I liked it. I think it definitely works well for the kind of historical story. And the talent in that is definitely creepy. It's a lot more owlish than anything we've seen before. But I'm not, I've said before, I think I even said the last issue, though, I'm not too keen with this whole owl thing and how, like, Every character is related to the Court of Owls at the moment, how everyone's history is just soaked in it. But I still think it was a very strong issue. I thought it was well-paced and exciting, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the arc, not just to see it finished. Just <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes and all the tie-ins as well. I think this event is coming off a lot better than I anticipated. Four out of five batterings. I'm throwing with Joe that, you know, I, I oh man, it, it just felt like it was dragging on for so long in this particular book, but it's really come in and, and I think this was, has been the best issue so far. Number eight was great. I gave that a high rating, but nine, I loved it. I loved the setup to the issue with the Taka that just like 
like Dustin said, the talk of the bat infestation and, and bringing in the owls. I love to talk about the suit and what it was capable of, kind of getting into the science of it all. Yep. And then ending with the fact that it was meant for alien worlds, but he's using it in his own home. And I think this really shows the emotional impact that this battle is having on Bruce. And we've seen it before, just that they're really attacking his home. He thought he knew Gotham, but he didn't. And, and just using that sort of as a foil. I love the dino coming to life and squashing some of the talents. And I didn't know it had that capability. So there's, I guess, a loss of my Batman history knowledge. But I didn't. So that was that was shocking for me. I didn't see that coming. I also thought Titus was going to come in. You know, it's been great to see some of Batman's little mementos actually being used for something. Because last issue, we saw the penny. And Alfred said, you're lucky penny, sir. And then we have the dino. I love the almost fighting between Bruce and Alfred because Alfred is so concerned, but, you know, Bruce does not want to put him in harm's way. And and Alfred has been caring for Bruce for so long, and it was just nice to kind of have him put that back and really protect him. I love the one panel with the back half of the dino and the bats coming down and swarming around the owls. There's no, I don't think there's any dialogue on that page whatsoever, but it's just a great panel. And it was great to have the bats actually make an entrance. Frankly, I think the art was really great this issue. I mean, it's been consistently good, but I, I think that it really complements the action in words well. And at first I thought the issue was a little too wordy. I mean, it, it seemed like a book's worth of words, and I think this particular version of Batman has really been wordier. And, you know, I, I think it works, and it's not unnecessary. I think it really proves its point, and it's worth something. I was a little confused as to what happened on the first page with Lincoln March. But after some studying, yeah, I realized that he shot the owl at the same time that the owl threw the knife. I think that was probably the most confusing layout of panels. It was just difficult to tell. And Don brings up a good point about, <laughs> wait, I thought that owls couldn't die. Of course, unless you shoot them in some sort of vital organ and don't pull it out, I guess. Which is also something that I thought about in Batgirl because, yes, of course she's not dead, but wait a minute, where is that talent going to go in Batgirl as well? But this was a shocking turn of events, to say the least, since we really were, like Dustin said, we were expecting a lot from Lincoln March. And I mean, we thought, okay, he's going to be with Bruce, really clean up Gotham. But is this paving the path for Bruce to become mayor? Because some of the things that he was saying to Batman was really like... Almost like Qui-Gon Jinn dying a bit, you know, saying you need to train him. So, you know, telling Batman you need to tell Bruce to carry on what has been going on. And I just wonder, gosh, is Bruce going to take on a more political role and be in this powerful position so he really can make live those dreams that he has? It, it was also a great way that Snyder has March speaking because it always seemed like he was calling Batman Bruce. Just in the way he was phrasing it, he always started off Bruce. And of course, it's because he's dying and he's having trouble speaking and breathing. But just in some sort of knowing way, you know, saying Bruce, it was for Bruce, you know, always starting off like that. And I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, the first time he said that, I thought, oh no, does he know? And then the backup, I liked it because it shows a different side to the Wayne past. But it connects not only with the owls, but, you know, with the mayoral issues and the need for Gotham to be better. And I didn't really think about changing the origin of how this all came about. And I think Snyder knows better than to mess with something like that 
something that has been uh, ingrained in, in comic fans' memories for as long as the Batman has been around. So I don't think that's going to happen. But I, I like how it's connecting to the present, the past with the present with the mayor and cleaning up Gotham and everything. And, you know, it's just great to see the history, as Justin like to says, the history. <laughs> so uh, overall, it was a great issue. I really liked it. I give it five out of five betterings. All right, so overall, the issue Batman number nine gets a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Batman and Robin number nine. I didn't need your help. Really? That's not what it looked like from where I was standing. I had it under control. Why did Alfred send you? He was worried about you. Batman Robin number 9, written by Peter Tomasi, art by Lee Garbett. The issue starts off with Damien in the sewers doing what appears to be some investigations of some sort. And he gets the message from Alfred about the Talons attacking. Alfred explains that his target will be Major General Benjamin Burroughs, the 52nd Adjutant Journal of Gotham. He commands over 15,000 enlisted personnel of the Gotham's Army and Air National Guard. He gives him his coordinates. It turns out he's in the Gotham Barrens doing some training exercises. After a quick escape from the sewer system, Robin pops his jetpack out of what appears to be his backpack and takes off towards the Barrens. Meanwhile, at the Barrens, the general is giving some orders to some men when he sees them taken out. Robin shows up, and uh, after the general says, apprehend this kid, Robin takes out the soldiers very quickly and tells the general that he's on a hit list for a set of assassins. As the general realizes that it could be a possibility, he tells his men to change over to live ammo. They shoot the talon, but it really doesn't do any good. The general hops onto Robin's back. The jetpack takes them away, but the talon jumps and grabs the wing and actually causes them to crash. As the talon crashes on a different spot, he comes across some campers who appear to be annoying him, so he slices their heads off. The men get a uh, message saying that the general is missing and that all of the soldiers should be switching over to live ammo for the time being. As they come across Robin and the general, Robin explains that the general is unconscious, but they need to listen to him and, and do what he says in order to defeat this Talon. Talon slowly starts picking them off one by one using a bow and arrow, and Robin is telling them where to shoot, but it's not really doing any good. What ends up happening is they run out of ammo. Robin tells them to fix bayonets, and they charge him. As they do that, Robin realizes that there's no way he's going to be able to take this guy down. We then get a flashback of the Talon explaining to the General why he's actually coming after him. And it turns out way, way, way back in the day, 1778, Edwin Wilkins was a army spy. And he was promised some land by George Washington. And the land was promised to him because he was most likely going to have to give his life in order to get the information from the Britons to the Americans. The Talon was sent by the court to actually kill the spy in the middle of the night and then to kill his family so that the court could get all of the land. As it turns out, one of the heirs of the Wilkins family, he actually survived his wounds that the Talon gave him. And because of that, he was hidden and his name was actually Burroughs. So as it turns out, this general is a very long, long descendant away from this Wilkins character that this Talon was originally supposed to kill, and because of that, that's why he was picked to actually kill this general. 
Meanwhile, Robin ends up shooting his grappling gun right through the, the Talon's head, through his eyepiece, and pulls him up and strings him up to a tree. As he's hanging from the tree, Robin grabs uh, the Talon's sword, slices him off, and his body is now apart from his head. All right, Batman Robin number nine. This was an interesting issue. I read these books in odd order. I read Batgirl first, I read Batwing, then I read Batman and Robin. And at this point, I was realizing to myself, how is it that everyone has no problem slicing limbs off these people, slicing their heads off, making them fall off buildings? Yeah. How is it that everyone is just completely okay with this? It doesn't make a difference if they're regenerative. They're still people, even if they were supposed to die hundreds of years ago. What? is the difference between them killing these people, slicing their heads off, slicing their arms off, and, you know, what Robin did last issue where he put Morgan Ducard out of commission by killing him. How is this any different? I mean, I guess you could I guess you could justify it as, yeah, they're not supposed to be alive anymore. They are zombies. Yeah, they're just these beings. I, I don't know how they're how they justify it because even Batman in Batman number nine was like, Oh, I can play rougher with these. I can hit them with my car. <laughs> I, can have, I can run them over. I can I can have bats eat them alive. I can smash them with a giant T Rex. I mean, I want to know how they came to this conclusion that yeah, it's all right. Let's just let's just do whatever we need to do to make sure that they can't keep coming at us. That set aside, the history lesson of why exactly this town was set to go attack the general was very interesting. Although I have to say, the art for that was probably by far some of the best period art that I've seen in some of these Batman books in quite some time. Put aside that, there wasn't a whole lot that happened here. Robin had to save this general mission accomplished, and somehow he still got to chop a head off. So I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I have very little to say about this issue. In fact, I don't have much to say about it at all. I mean, it was very basic. I, you know, when you read these Night of Owl storylines, except for Batman, they're essentially the same plots. You know, Batgirl actually had a little bit of forward momentum with the Owl signal, but these are basically, you know, Owl is attacking, save guy, mission accomplished or not accomplished. It's like a two-way street. And after a while, there's less and less you can kind of talk about it and how they how they differentiate it. I am not a military guy, unlike our esteemed leader. I was kind of... And when I say that, I, I don't mean to have anything against the military, not at all, but like I'm not really like... My my uh, preferences or interests don't really go towards the military. So, like, I wasn't really invested in the storyline. It was kind of neat seeing Robin kind of assert his training that he got from Talia in the League of Assassins. But it's not something we haven't seen before. I'm not saying, you know, like, they're repeating anything. But because we have seen that aspect of his personality before, it didn't really engross me in this issue. And it, it almost kind of played like a horror movie, which is interesting. But I didn't really think the issue itself was all that interesting generally. The art was decent by Lee Garbage. He's no stranger to drawing Damien yeah. as he did in, as he did in Batgirl pre-flashpoint. But I, it was it was okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, I didn't love it. Didn't hate it. I will say addressing like the whole killing thing. I guess it makes a good point that like the Batman was taking this opportunity, and we'll see later on in Batwing that like oh we can't we can't kill these guys. Well, let's that doesn't stop us from drawing. I thought it was weird in Batgirl because Batgirl kind of like acted as though she could kill them and tried and didn't. Whereas everyone else kind of knows that they can't kill them and just kind of goes all, go all out. That's why I don't really have a problem with it because they recognize that these guys can't be killed by, they can't be killed at all, essentially. So they can kind of use their illegal training that they have, they've been trained with 
to kind of, you know, stop them as best they can. They don't need to pull their punches. That being said, from a narrative sense, it does seem to be shown to just have an excuse to show gore and basically be a slasher flick. And I guess the blame lies with each individual writer, but I agree that it's, it's sort of a cheap move. It doesn't really offend me, but it just, it's like, you know, like, I don't know. It, it I don't know about it. Uh, <laughs> two and a half out of five batterings. I enjoyed this issue. I enjoyed Damien's characterization in this. I think he's getting to a place where I'm starting to enjoy him as a character, especially after the last or the end of the last story arc. I thought that I thought that Lee Garbit did a good job. I thought it was pretty reminiscent of Patrick Gleason, and I, I didn't mind that. I, it wasn't quite as rounded, I'd say, as Patrick Gleason, but I thought it was better for it. And the history or flashback sequence by Andy Clark was. That really was a beautiful page, especially with, I mean, I'm not sure if that's supposed to be in Talon or what that was in the middle, but that was definitely creepy. I think we've seen Andy Clark in some of Grant Morrison's work during Batman and Robin, I think. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I recognized it. But I I thought that this was the best looking Talon out of the ones we've seen so far, costume wise. And I didn't get his characteristics though in that. He seemed to sort of kill a lot of a lot of unnecessary people, whereas I don't think we've really seen that so far with the others. Granted, in Batgirl, she was setting off bombs around the city, so again, quite why she'd care about Batgirl when she was blowing up half the city doesn't make much sense. But in here, you know, just the talent cutting off the heads of those two young lovers in the tent. <laughs> Definitely reminiscent, like Don said, of like a, a Jason movie. Oh, dear. Well, you you brought him up last thing. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. No, uh, yeah, I enjoyed the issue. I thought it was entertaining. It kind of makes me want like maybe a Robin miniseries. I think that would be an interesting thing. And yeah, a decent issue. I enjoyed it. And I definitely mentioned in the Nightwing issue, I wasn't sure that I agreed with them just sort of killing these talons just because I know Nightwing did. He jammed his the scream sticks through its eye. And I was seeing how I still thought that was kind of out of character. I feel that with the amount of issues that have done it now, I'm not sure if it's just desensitized or if it's, yeah. or if I now kind of feel it is slightly more justified in that there is no way to stop them. They will keep coming. And the only way to get them is to, to permanently put them out of commission. And the only way you can do that is by killing them. But I kind of thought that Damien summed it up well when he said that they died a long time ago. And I thought that was a nice way of, sort of putting it without hamming it up too much. But uh, yeah, I, I thought a, a decent issue. So three and a half out of five batterings. I wasn't laughing at you in that. It's just that that's totally what it was. It totally was like a, a Jason slasher effect. I feel like I am probably numb to all of this, like the killing and why are they killing? What's with the ethics of it? Because I am so, I still wonder about the killing in Birds of Prey. And those weren't, those were actual human beings. Those weren't talents. So I just am. And then the next issue didn't even address it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm more turned off, I think, by that than what's going on here. Okay. Well, I am having trouble understanding the motivation behind the Court of Owls. And I think this is really the issue where I started to question all of this. Now, why the senseless killing, you know, like those two campers, like he just, he could have walked by. I don't understand. Even with the history taking place in pre-revolutionary America, I don't know what the point is of all of these assassinations. What actually is the end goal of the talents? Have we even been told? Yes, they want to get rid of people in power, but what? Do they want to do just take over? Is there anything 
more explicitly said about that. Probably but... said it's just they want to rule Gotham City, and that's okay. Very vague. Oh, okay, I love that this issue focuses on Robin and and how frustrating it must be to be constantly underestimated. Oh wait, I, I think I can understand that feeling. You know, he really becomes an adult, a leader, always thinking smart and really showing military strategy in this particular issue. And I don't have military knowledge as well. Like like Donovan said, I do have a brother in the Navy. I did wonder where this particular camp was in Gotham because thinking of Gotham, I didn't really see it as a, a place that would have a fort or barracks or a base of any kind. So I had to kind of put my mind in there for a moment. But, you know, I was a little surprised that the major general left his men to die at the outpost. I kind of feel like he is like the captain and his men are the ship. And, you know, you go down with your ship. And I guess maybe movies and novels really glorify this this idea that, you know, the leader is going to stick with his men and, and leave no man behind. But I, I guess I really felt like that would be the case here. And maybe they would make a last stand right there at that outpost. I, I think that Dustin would have to comment on that. Oh, a quote that I pulled out. Why the hell should we be listening to a freaking kid? Because this kid read Clauschwitz and Jomini at the age of six while you were still trying to figure out the buttons on a cue box, you imbecile. I, I just love that. You know, underestimated, but he's telling them, hey, guess what? I'm not just a kid. I know what I'm talking about. I'm trying to protect you here. I love those small, creepy panels of the talent turning his head all the way around to see Robin. Yes, kind of exorcist-like, but definitely like an owl, right? They can turn their heads all the way around. And again, I would just love how the main talent in each issue, and this really fits, I think, across the board, really fits with the character that's being highlighted in this particular issue and has similarities. And here, Damien is keen enough to clue in on it. And, and I think this issue also evokes sympathy just because, you know, you were used by the talents because, he, you know, he narrates his past and being an assassin during pre-revolutionary America. And, and he says, you know, my mother used me as well. So I don't know. I, I thought this was another fine issue. It had a slightly slower beginning, but I think it came out all right in the end. 4.5 out of 5 betterings. Would you like to comment on, wh what did you think about that whole, where he left? Did, did that not sit right with you? Or in your experience, would that... In my experience, if the men's job is to protect the general, then the men's job is to give their lives for the general regardless. Okay. I know for a fact, if you're overseas and you're on a security detail... And your job is to, you know, you're on a convoy for a general or a dignitary of some sort. It is irregardless of what their rank is, whether they're a dignitary or they're a general or they're a captain. If you're on that security detail, you're going to give your life for them, even if they are going to leave. That's just the way it goes. I think ultimately, and I think the, the men that were on that outpost standing, you know, that, that tall outpost mm -hmm. out there, when Robin showed up and the general told him, apprehend him, those weren't men that were training those, that was his security detail. So that's what I got out of it. And I'm, I assume that that's what they were intending because, I mean, that's pretty much what they were going for, but that's, that's how, it would okay. be. you know, we are Marshall. Oh, I'm the first man in and I'm the, going to be the first man out. There are leaders like that. That's few and far between. And that's why there's movies made about people like that is because they are few and far between. Thank you. No problem. 
All right, so Batman Robin number nine gets a total of three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Batwing number nine. No mix survival suit for advanced infantry. Kevlar utility harness, gas-powered magnetic grapple gun. What's that? On the tumbler? Oh, you wouldn't be interested in that. Batwing number nine, written by Judd Winnick, illustrated by Marcus Toe. We begin this issue in Gotham City, 1856, at the Court of Owls. Back then, they're discussing a talent fighter known as Alexander Staunton. They're talking about retiring him, even though he's really, really good at what he does. But they describe him as more monster than weapon. We cut back to modern-day Gotham City at the Batman Inc. Research and Development Program when David Zavimbi, Matu, and Lucius Fox are in the bunker kind of making chat, and Lucius invites them to a charity gala in order to smooth over relations between Batman Inc. and the regular citizens of Gotham City. David's a little hesitant, but Matu says, We'd love to come. Ha, ha, ha. And while that's going on, the Court of Owls fly over and attack with their mission intending to kill Lucius Fox. While there, David and Matu run into Matthew Kahlo, who goes on about being a prime minister in Africa, but apparently he's this horrible warlord. When the owls attack, Matu gets the signal from Alfred that every issue has that the owls are attacking and they need to protect as many people as they possibly can that are targets. Batwing arrives just in time to save Lucius and he fights with the main talent, presumably this Alexander guy. And although he beats him up and breaks some bones, he sees right in front of him that his bones can heal. He has this huge regenerative healing factor. At one point, the town takes Ambassador Van Uyl's throat at knife point, and although Lucius Fox says, no, 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 don't kill him, I'll, I'll, I'll turn myself in, Batwing sees an opening, throws some lockpick explosives, and blows off the Talon's arms. As the day is saved, and he ties up the Talon's legs, the warlord goes over to congratulate Batwing and says, I take pride that you would leave to protect an old warrior, my proud African son. Batwing elbows him in the face, puts on his sunglasses, and tells Lucius Fox, forgive me, Mr. Fox. But that is how we compromise in Africa. Yeah! Next. <laughs> All right, Batwing number nine. Um, I don't have a lot to say about this issue, mostly because it really didn't feel, well, one, it didn't feel like the rest of the Batwing issues. This was the one issue out of all of them that felt sort of forced as far as Night of Owls out of everything we've done so far. And I say that because it just seemed like, well, Okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to make it so that Batwing is still in Gotham for Night Vowels? How is that going to work? How are we going to explain it? Well, he was already in Gotham in the last issue, but why was he still around? Well, it just so happens that he had to get armor upgrades on his suit. Uh, very coincidental that he had to get armor upgrades from Lucius Fox, who just so happens to be on the list... <laughs> And he happens to be at a party the same time that the talents come for him. There was way too many coincidences with that. I didn't really think that was very good. The other part that I wasn't real keen on was, I get that they keep trying to stress the fact that, you know, how Africa's culture works as far as their leaders, the horrible things that sometimes some of the leaders have done, and how they keep stressing on that. But honestly, I don't know that we need it in every single issue. And we've had it in every single issue. Why can't we just have a story about Batwing, this guy who happens to be from Africa, who has a suit of armor, who is a badass? Why can't we just have that for once? Why is it always got to be about, oh, I'm from Africa, and by the way, I hate the way the leaders are in Africa because most of them used to be warlords that killed people and blah, blah, blah. They kill people. Genocide. Decapitations. I mean, really? Do we really have to be reading about this every single issue? 
I don't think we do. And I think that ultimately it's kind of making the character way too one-dimensional where he cares about nothing except what happens in his country and how things are ran in his country. And that doesn't make him an international hero, so I don't understand why he's become a character in Justice League International. That's a different story for a different day, but there's just, I don't understand why they keep stressing on that over and over again. This was one of the first issues that I think has actually, like, reaffirmed everything that happened in Batman Incorporated before the New 52, with Lucius Fox saying, oh yes, you guys are the agents of Batwing, the Batman of Africa, and you know, yes, I, I, I'm all about helping, you know, Batman and Batman Incorporated, and I'm all for that, and, you know, we've got all these awesome upgrades that we can give you, and it's like the first time that we really saw that. Yeah, there's been mentions of Batman Incorporated, like there was mentions in Batman and Robin, but there, like, this was just, bam, here, this is what's happening. Lucius Fox is giving the Batman Incorporated people armor. It just was surprising because we really haven't seen it. It just so happens that Batman Incorporated is coming back, you know, this month too. So I don't know if that was a coincidence or if that was planned. Or maybe Judd Winnick is just hoping that Batwing pops up in Batman Incorporated so more people start reading Batwing, the main series. Either way, I didn't think it was that good. And quite honestly, I, as I said months ago, you know, once it was going to be revealed the Massacre was David's brother, where are they really going to go with this series? And... Tying in Night of Owls didn't really help them. So I'm going to give this two out of five batterings. I don't think it was that bad. First of all, Marcus Toe was the master. I think he's he continues his excellent work from all his past titles. And I'm really loving his art here. And I'm looking forward to seeing him, seeing him on Batwing. I, I thought I thought he was a, he was a breath of fresh air. I like I've read the first artist, but I, I like his artwork. But I think this is a lot more cleaner, a lot more appealing to me visually. I agree that it's a it's almost like the '60s Batman show type of coincidence where they're the Scala. And, you know, the exact person that you know, Lucius Fox, is being targeted. Although, it's not a surprise that Lucius got targeted. But, you know, at the end of the day, Lucius Fox is just like a worker in Wayne Enterprises. What, is, what, what does he do? That's, that's so dangerous that he needs to be killed. Whatever. Anyway, for what it was, I thought it was decent. I thought the art was good. I thought it was very solid one and done. And I liked how, instead of saying, oh, no, he can't, you know... He can't be killed or whatever. They show that when he kept on dealing with more and more punishment and he, and he wouldn't go down. So he ended up pulling his arms off, which I actually, it's kind of, I feel kind of hypocritical saying this, but I actually did really like when he did that because it was unexpected and it was a way to take him down without just like, I mean, like that wouldn't kill him if he was a real, if he was, you know, didn't have regenerative abilities. I thought that was a, that was a clean, for lack of a better phrase, clean way to, you know, save the day without, I don't know, gutting his guts out or whatever. So yeah, overall, I, I like this issue. It's a solid one, Don. It does what it needs to do well. Although, I will I will agree with Dustin that Judd Winnick is a very liberal writer. I mean, like, let's just put that on the table. He's very, very liberally minded. And I think that when he, when he wanted to do this comic book, it sort of, you know, put it in the public consciousness minds that Africa is a very messed up, horrible, genocidal, torturous continent. But it's also a very beautiful and wonderful and loving continent. And I feel as though he's getting extremely preachy with this book. To the point where it's not even like distasteful. It's just kind of annoying and really almost stereotypical the way he just says that the, uh, world after world after world. Yes, that's what Batwing's all about, fighting these guys. But you're, you're paying the whole continent out to be this undesirable place where it's really not. It's only in certain parts of the continent. So try to provide a fuller three-dimensional spectrum. Three out of five Batarangs. 
yeah, this book definitely felt very different to what we've had before from both Batwing and I think even the Night of Owls. I mean, obviously the changing artists did a lot for that. I mean, sure we had Dustin Wen last two issues, but I still think that his style was kind of, although not the same, it still had a, a kind of feel about it, which flowed better than this seemed to for me. It was good art, but I think it was a, a, a big jump and that was a bit jarring. It's nice to have Nick Fury back in the book because they haven't seen him for a while. Um, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Uh-oh. Wasn't me. Yeah, I mean, this is another book where the character kind of has no idea about regenerative powers. I don't think it just kind of blows his arms off, but, you know, it's Batwing. He's always had kind of issues with taking it too far, as we've seen from previous issues. I think we'd kind of thought that he was trying to turn that around, but I guess he hasn't yet. Whereas the other books have felt like it's been a significant amount of time, but, you know, just like in one night, I felt this was kind of done and it felt like it was just like a couple of hours, if that. Like the whole issue took place over maybe like a couple of hours. So, I mean, it's not even dark out when you <laughs> look in the backgrounds of the issue. So I, I don't quite understand the night of owls. It was more like the evening, but it was still a decent issue. It's pretty in- enjoyable. I think it was a shame that, that Marcus Toe came on this issue, I think. I, I feel it would have been better if he came in at the beginning of a new story arc instead of a one-off tie-in. Two and a half out of five Batarangs. Okay. Again, I like how the issue begins with the history on a character that is very similar to Massacre, if you actually think about it, or really anyone else that David encountered while he was in the army. And that's something that I've said before, but you know, it, it sort of goes across the board on all of the issues. And I hope it continues in the next two weeks as well, that we really have this talent and the talent fits in with the book he's in. It's funny that despite the similarities between Bruce and David, they still have their great disparities as well. I think this is a good thing so that David becomes his own character. You know, he's not comfortable with opulence and he's not wanting to romance women. And we've seen how he failed <laughs> at his uh, his attempts at shipping. If you remember that weird interaction, don't worry because you're a woman. But he can't even, like, act at all. It's just so against his character. And it's so interesting because, of course, Bruce sort of hates that lifestyle. But I think he's he's just very able to put that on as a mask. I like that David cannot play act. Like, yeah, he can't pretend to be somebody else. And, and you know, this is either going to be a role that he will either never be able to play or it's something that he will learn to play in time. And And I think... I mean, that's only, what, a quarter of the book? Because I know Dustin has said, where is this book going to go from here? But I think that part of his life, that'll be interesting to see how he goes from there. And if I am to comment on Dustin's comment there, I wonder if potentially in the future this kind of just struck me. Could this be like Nightwing when when Dick was also moonlighting as a police officer? And so kind of two different lives because... David is a part of the police force there, so perhaps we'll see those two different parts of his life. But as for villains or what else is going to pop up, I don't know. But back to this. Sorry about that. Interesting seeing Matu wear a tux. I think, you know, it, it didn't even have pineapples on it. That was, whew. That looked good. 
<laughs> it no, it seriously did, but I just didn't. Yeah. It, it caught me unawares. I like the upgrades that Batwing made to his suit after his bout with Massacre, and I like that Batwing learns about the talent and his abilities as he is fighting, so he doesn't consistently make the same mistakes. He learns from what's going on during the tussle, and, and it was ironic and how fun that the ambassador happens to be threatened, and then Batwing punches him out, so he saves the ambassador even though he wants him to kill. He wants to kill him, and then he does end up beating him up. I give it higher ratings than the other fellow. I guess that's why I'm the token female. Four out of five batterings. <laughs> All right, so overall, Batwing number nine gets a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Detective Comics number nine. Look, uh, I've got a problem, and you are absolutely the man who possesses the gifts to take care of this problem. Detective Comics number nine, written and drawn by Tony Daniel. The issue opens up with a group of men trying to enter Arkham Island, which has been cut off from the rest of Gotham to protect Dr. Arkham and his patients. We then cut to Jeremiah Arkham, who explains just how safe the asylum is until he is talking to Roman Sionis, the former Black Mask, where there is a power outage and the Court of Owls attack Dr. Arkham. As Arkham is being attacked, Batman swings to the rescue with his freeze grenades and tells Arkham to run like hell. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst Batman is fighting the court, Arkham escapes through a hidden passage in a wall, but returns with Black Mask's mask, which he gives to Sionis. Sionis uses subliminal messaging to get the inmates of Arkham to attack the court. Meanwhile, Batman takes down Sionis, takes out the final owl, and saves Jeremiah from the asylum, and then punches him in the face a couple of times. As for the backup, a character named Dominic Sterano organizes a private meeting with Harvey Dent, as only Dent can help him resolve his situation. Basically, Sterano is being blackmailed by someone, and he asks Dent to go and sort that person out, and in return, he will make sure Dent gets his district attorney position back. So Dent agrees with this, goes to find the man who is blackmailing Sterano, but it turns out to be a setup, and Harvey Dent's men are killed, and then at the end of the issue, is threatened by a trio of men in robes. All right, Detective Comics number nine. Okay, so the last issue that we did, when we talked about Batwing, I said, well, this one felt forced. Now, this one didn't feel forced as if it was part of the Night of Owls. It felt like Daniel was trying to do anything he possibly could to keep it as far away from Night of Owls as possible. He basically said, okay, fine. If I have to do Night of Owls, that's fine. I'll do Night of Owls. But I am going to have Batman and the Talons in it as little as entirely possible. And the way he did that was by having the Talons show up more than halfway through the story. And basically, Jeremiah Arkham goes on and on and on about Arkham Asylum and how great the security is. And he, you know, Daniel shows off some of his villains that he's created that's locked up inside of Arkham Asylum. He touches on Black Mask and Roman Sionis, which he's dealt with in the past as well. He deals with the fact that Arkham was parading around as Black Mask last year before the New 52. He hints on all of these different things that Daniels did in previous Wait, stories. where did they reference that? I'm sorry? Or when Arkham was Black Mask? Yeah, when Arkham was talking to Sionis, Sionis says, Well, you know how my mask works because you were parading around as him. Oh, okay. So basically, Daniels was like, I'm going to basically do a kind of a brush up on all of the stories that I've done over the past two years since Battle for the Cow. And I'm going to hint on all these different things that I've started and maybe left undone. 
and things like that, which is not necessarily a bad thing because Daniels has so many plot points that he leaves hanging, waiting to pick up at a different time. And one of these days, someone's going to say, sorry, you can't keep writing detective comics because it's just not that good. And when that happens, we'll have a lot of questions unanswered that he'll just go on and on about how he had so many stories he could have told. And we would have had all our questions answered if only he was given more opportunities. You can only have so many opportunities when your book sucks. <laughs> and I say this because this was the hardest book to read out of all the books that we did. And the reason being is, for some reason, this book took three times longer to get through because there was so much dialogue happening. Not only dialogue between the characters, but the, the thoughts of Jeremiah Arkham. Way, way, way too much. I mean, I read this book and thought to myself, wow, this seems like it's going on forever. And then I got to the end and realized, oh, crap, there's a backup, too. And the backup is so incredibly hard to follow, specifically because there's so much dialogue. And there's so little, there's such a little amount of panels to actually show what's going on that you read the dialogue and think to yourself, wait, how is that having to do with what's happening in this panel? But then you realize to yourself, oh, that's like the panel that they're showing is the first sentence, but there's 15 other sentences in the same panel. I mean, it's just, it's getting really annoying. And I know I harp about Tony Daniel a lot, and I'll continue to harp about him. It's annoying as hell how much dialogue he shoves in these books. He was never an, a writer to begin with. He was an artist. And the thing is, I feel as if he is writing his scripts specifically so that the artist, whether it be him or somebody else, draws exactly what he wants without, you know, just doing that as the notes to the side. It's annoying and I cannot stand it. And I could not get through this book. And then the worst part about it was I read Batman, which had a backup, and got through with it in like, a fraction of the amount of time that it took me to get through Detective Comics. And my only conclusion was the dialogue. There was so much dialogue, it was ridiculous. All right, that being said, the backup, I don't know if that was supposed to fall in with Night of Owls. It clearly didn't, so I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't supposed to. I didn't like the backup. I like Seismic Kodransky's art, but I feel bad for the guy because he should have never been teamed up with a guy who's, who has so much dialogue. <laughs> I could not follow what was going on because I was looking at the panels and trying to match the words and thinking to myself, there's too much going on in this very short, short story. It was nice to see Arkham Asylum. I got to give Tony Daniels props for the art that he did, the whole Jeremiah Arkham story, because I thought it was pretty good art. But quite honestly, there's nothing that's going to save this book from a half a better. Mm. Yeah, and I want to do it too. <laughs> okay, I'm ready to start it. Tony Daniel, I, I don't know what it is with this guy. I, I'm not... I'm not going to harp on his Batman, although I could. Dustin put up a good point. With his dialogue, it seems like he's trying to, like, stuff as much exposition and characterization as possible. But it kind of feels off-kilter with the art, I think. I think that he kind of writes... He, he obviously writes more than he needs to, as opposed to letting the art tell the story when it should. Like Scott Snyder has Greg Capullo do in Batman, because it's basically, like, you know, the same kind of thing. But there are times where there are no words. They're just panels. It's just, the art speaks more than words could. And I think that like Daniel just doesn't understand that concept. I think if he were if he were on with a writer like Grant Morrison Longer or maybe another writer, he would learn that. But he's been writing Batman for like, or he's been writing like Batman slash Detective Comics for over a year now. I guess three three, three years. years. Oh my god! Since Battle Before the Cowl, right? Oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> holy holy crap! Okay, okay. If they're if they're going to reference like Doctor Arkham being Black Mask. Then do they reference how he got his job back? Nope. Okay, okay, that sucks. 
I do. I hate that crap. I do not like it when status quo returns without any mention why. Like, like they they, they did this back then when when, when all of a sudden, ow, what? <laughs> Flashpoint. No. That's a Flash. explanation though, because if no, you, no. here's yeah. the thing. Yeah. Here's the thing. Let me let me, let me let me jump in here. Here's the thing. If you want to use Flashpoint as an explanation of how Jeremiah Arkham got his job back, fine. But then why did editorial allow him to use Black Mask? Roman Sionis, who was supposed to be dead. Exactly. Why did they bring him back and say, oh, by the way, we're going to allow you to say, yes, not only is Roman Sionis not dead, even though he was dead during Blackest Night and played a role in the Catwoman, played a huge role in the Gotham City Sirens for a while with the whole Maggie Kyle storyline, but also we're going to use the idea that we're going to bring up the fact that Jeremiah Arkham was Black Mask and was killing people left and right and it was okay, and suddenly it's okay because he's Jeremiah Arkham. He can get his job back. How does that make any sense? How can you explain, or how do you even mention, by the way, you were Black Mask, you were wearing the mask and doing stuff, you know how the mask works, but you were never held accountable for what you did. He was an inmate of Arkham Asylum by the end of that storyline, and now he's running again? Oh, Flashpoint, this is everything. No, screw that. That's horrible. This is why I can't, this is why I can't stand like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Because no, 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 it, it's it, cause that's you know that's what we have to go on. If that's the explanation, then it's stupid. That's horrible writing. That's absolutely horrible. And I have another question. And okay, this is a legitimate question. But at what point does Black Mask have mental powers? Well, hey, Tony Daniel writes what he wants. No, like, I thought the freaking mask like like hypnotized people. It was some sort of technology. I didn't know he had superpowers. God Almighty, the, the Black Guard with the hook. Wasn't he from Gotham City Sirens? Mm-mm. <laughs> no, he made his appearance. That in... was that was from Batman Arkham Asylum. Yeah, the game. Aaron Cash. Okay. Yeah. Ever since the New 52, he's appeared in numerous books. Okay. I, I, I'm not beating the Arkham Asylum yet. He was also in Gotham City Sirens. He's been in a number of Okay, so games. is he supposed to be drawn like 50 Cent? No, but that is kind of how he looks in the game. Alright. I'm not going to harp on that any longer. Why is, why is Clayface in Arkham Asylum? He's not crazy. He just, he just has superpowers. Like, I, I don't like when that happens. That's a, that's a, that's a nitpick. This issue's going down right before my eyes. I, I didn't dislike it that much, but now it's like, oh my god, this blows. I do like the art, though. The art's really good, but who cares about the art if the writing's this bad? It's just like Neil Adams. Especially when Batman, like, trying to save Arkham, and he just, like, knocks him out. And then, like, when he wakes up, he knocks him out again. Ugh. I didn't read the backup because I didn't care about it. One out of five batterings. Let's start off with a good note. I also thought that the art in this issue was the best it's been since probably the beginning. I'm, I'm not sure why. I just felt it was a lot stronger than it has been, and... You know, there's, there's detail in there and everything seemed to be a lot more in perspective than it has been. I always thought that, Mizzy, I don't know Black Mask that well. I kind of know of him more than I know him as a character. But I thought the whole Black Mask thing came from he had a like a mask and then it was burnt onto his face or something. And then he had that mask permanently. Is that is that right? That is, is how that... it happened. And I guess Flashpoint fixed that, did it? Well... <laughs> There was a couple different ways because there was another one. They retold his origin at some point where it was his mother had a giant mask collection and his mother gave the masks more attention than him. So he glued one of the masks to his face. And when they tried to remove the mask, it tore off his skin. So he had to have some sort of mask on his face anyway. And he just decided to pick his mother's favorite. Okay. Somehow superpowers. But either way, he's supposed to have a, a mask permanently on his face. So. Yeah, not, you know, no face 
from another Tony Dan. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I hadn't noticed it as much until this issue how much dialogue there is, particularly the backup. I think Dustin was saying how maybe it's because he doesn't trust Seisman Kodransky to do his you know, his writing justice, so he puts a whole lot more writing in it, but there's so much dialogue in there and all the exposition in there still doesn't really explain what's going on. But I, I thought the art for both segments of the book was really great. I, I thought the story was okay for the main story. I mean, granted, there's a lot of things wrong with it and more things that I, I didn't even really notice in first reading, which kind of always happens on this show where Dustin and Don who know a lot more continuity than me point out all these things which I just glanced over, you know, ignorance is bliss and then I go, Oh, okay, well that was that was wrong as well. Okay. <laughs> and drops a few marks. But I guess I had fun reading it. I th- I thought it was an okay time. I mean it it did kind of feel a bit not rushed because the art and stuff just you know, the whole storyline felt a bit forced in I, I kind of laughed when he kept knocking out jeremiah arkham it was a bit it was so ridiculous i just kind of found it quite funny so out of character i know but it, was, it made me laugh <laughs> again it's one of those times where i just am not sure how it's supposed to be reading it but it's definitely one of the weaker tie-ins to the night of owls storyline and like we were saying earlier it's probably written for convenience for Scott Snyder and people and I'm not sure how much passion Tony Daniel had for it but overall I enjoyed it probably about as much as Batwing so two out of five Batwings well here's where you know I thought the entire night I've been really on my A game and bringing good reviews and then I come to this and in my opinion this is probably one of the better if not the best detective comics that have come out so far this year and detective has just been i mean it's not the worst book by far you know catwoman and red hood and odyssey have been the bane of my existence but you know for a book that has such a big title like detective (laughs) comics hello it's not been holding its weight And, and this i thought was actually good yes it was wordy but so was batman so i wonder you know how could you handle Batman if you couldn't, you know, Detective Comics? Because I, th- I feel like they were equally wordy. And Jeremiah Arkham, the way he's writing, it's almost as if it's, it's sort of like a diary. And like you really get the sense of like what type of person he is. And you can tell he's sort of unhinged. And I think this narration, you really you just get an idea as to the character. I just thought I also liked, you know, getting a look at the different inmates. I liked seeing Aaron Cash as a guard since we first saw him in Arkham Asylum. I was going to bring that in. I thought, oh, the audience will think I'm smart because I noticed that. But Dustin kind of took my thunder. I was confused about the black mask, Roman Sionis part. You know, it was just weird because is it a mask or is it just something he can change about himself? And I feel like that was kind of answered in the discussion before. But it was that was not set out well. And I think that that part was probably the the lowest part for me. I like how the inmates go for the owls. I mean, you wouldn't expect that. You would expect them to go for Batman, but they just kind of go after this guy, you know, get out of our house. I also like the somewhat twisted narration. I've already talked about that. I feel like this is possibly the best detective. You know, Arkham and the potential for weird, freaky characters make this book have a great deal of potential. Whether or not it continues on this path is, well, it's beyond me. I love how even though this is not an event, mind you, and you don't need to buy the other books, Batman and Birds of Prey are reference. That's a kind of a little 
I'm slapped there. I thought it interesting that for once the owls told the person they were going to die and why they were sentenced to die rather than just saying hello you're unworthy this this is what we've seen all the time you're sentenced to die you're unworthy but hey they actually gave a reason this time which i'm so confused as to their whole mission point but whatever as for the backup yikes you know i feel like it's just not, it's not worthwhile we have a backup in batman and that was actually i think that was a good backup and it sort of made its way it had a point for being there but this one i don't know i don't even know what's going on how could harvey dent ever be reinstated as da after everything he's done and why are random limbs just popping up it was so weird flashpoint no, the limbs do not. Aff- do not become that guy. Do not become that guy. Do not become it's that not guy. Me for once, but despite the backup, you know, I, I I had a four out of five, but I was listening to everything. You know, the the previous reviews sort of influenced me, which is I guess the bad thing about being last. So I do say three point five out of five. But to be honest, I think that this is the better, if not the best, detective comics that's come out. All right, so Detective Comics number nine gets a total of one and a half out of five batterings. That is all of our books. Let's go over to John with Bat Books for Beginners. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bat Books for Beginners. I'm your host, John, and this week we are reviewing. Underworld Unleashed. Underworld Unleashed was a multi-series crossover that ran at the end of 1995. Like other crossovers, it has a main series called Underworld Unleashed, which was written by Mark Wade, who wrote Superman Birthright, and with art by Howard Porter. This was collected as a graphic novel in 1998. It also played out in single issues with various superheroes taking on villains who had sided with Neron, the main villain, such as The Flash taking on The Shadow Thief and Hawkman taking on Scarecrow, as well, of course, as affecting the Batman universe. In Asriel 10, Detective Comics 691 and 692, Catwoman 27, Robin 23 and 24, as well as Underworld Unleashed, Devil's Asylum, and Patterns of Fear. These, however, have not been collected as a trade paperback, but can all be bought separately. So, abandon hope, all ye who enter here, as we descend into the Underworld. Asriel 10 is a prologue of sorts, written by Dennis O'Neill, and with art by Barry Kitson. In this episode, Asriel has returned to Gotham to draw out Batman by fighting at a karate competition and killing the contestants. The contest is being watched by Tim and Alfred, who agree that they should do something. Tim, as Robin, challenges Asriel, who easily overcomes him. And we learn that this Asriel challenged the real one, that is to say, John Paul Valley, and lost. He was plunging to his death when he was rescued by Kadabra, who recruits him for someone called Neron, and will save his life in return for attacking Batman. Batman turns up and beats the false Asriel, saving him from falling. This leads into Underworld Unleashed Part 1. Neron, through Kadabra, has recruited several of the Flash's rogue gallery, who are used to destroy five sites, and in doing so are devoured by green fire, presumably dying. 
This is noticed by the Justice League missing Superman as he was on trial off-planet, who decide to investigate. Only Blue Devil notices that the fires form a pentangle and that something has been unleashed. We follow also the Trickster, who is struggling to make ends meet. Whilst at the same time as we are following Trickster, there is a major breakout of the supervillains at Belrev Prison. These villains plus Trickster are brought together to meet Neron, who offers them powers and to fulfil their desires in exchange for their souls. Some refuse and leave, whilst others accept. Trickster is given a place on the ruling council along with Lex Luthor, Circle, Joker and Polaris. Whilst this is happening, Batman and Robin in Detective 691 and 692, written by Chuck Dixon and with art by Staz Johnson and Gloria Vasquez, break up Spellbinder and his gang. Spellbinder and his girlfriend escape, where they are approached by Neron, who offers ultimate power for Spellbinder's soul. Spellbinder refuses and is shot by his girlfriend, who becomes the new improved Spellbinder. Batman and Robin go up against her. However, her new powers prove too much, and she escapes with gold that she was trying to steal. Tim feels upset that he made a mistake which partially allowed her to escape, but Alfred encourages him by saying Bruce trusts him and is proud of him, and is glad that he realises he made a mistake. Batman talks with Oracle over how to deal with the new Spellbinder, and Batman devises a suit which shows Robin what is actually happening, who then, through a remote, relays it to Batman, and despite Bellbinder's powers, allows Batman to take her down. Whilst this is happening in Underworld Unleashed Part 2, the Blue Devil takes out an empty power station for Nero, in return for being a big star in films to impress his girlfriend. While at the same time, Trickster is left in charge of the council by Neron. They torture him to try and gain the source of Neron's power. The villains attack a jar of souls, which is believed to be the basis for Neron's power, only to find that it's been a trap, and in fact they are now stuck in a glass jar. Meanwhile, Neron travels around offering the heroes something they desire in return for their souls. Some people accept, while others, such as Batman and Flash, refuse. The Justice League discover who Neron is, and that he is after one soul in particular, who is pure. Deciding that he must have meant Superman, they decide that he should be rescued. As this is happening in Catwoman 27, written by Chuck Dixon and art by Jim Ballant, she has to steal a gemstone shaped as a gorilla to prevent Gorilla Grodd from ruling Ape City. While in Robin 23 and 24, once more written by Chuck Dixon, that guy really gets around, and art by Aaron Lotpriesty, Robin must take on and survive Killer Moth, who, by agreement with Neron, has now become Charzax. It goes badly for Robin and the police, who turn up to help him, until he is rescued by a mystery stranger who has come especially for Charaxes. In The Devil's Asylum, written by Alan Grant and art by Rick Burchett, Batman has to get a cure from Crippen after he, during a blackout, poisons the entire asylum, in the hope that he can get Batman to kill someone, damning his soul and condemning it to Neron. Batman instead poisons Crippen so that he will lead him to the antidote, allowing him to save the asylum. Meanwhile, in Batman 525, written by Doug Motion 
and art by Kelly Jones and John Beatty, Batman has to stop Mr. Freeze, who, having given his soul in return for improved powers, is now freezing old people with the offer of being resurrected in the future where there is a cure for old age and illness, which then allows him to steal their belongings and possessions, becoming rich in the process. Whilst in Patterns of Fear, written by Roger Stern and art by Anthony Williams and Anne D. Lanning, Oracle is confronted by Neron, who offers her the ability to walk and superpowers in return for her working for him. He looks through her files while she considers the offer. Ultimately, however, she refuses, deciding somehow that Neron will want to take her soul. It all finally wraps up in Underworld Unleashed Part 3. With part of the Justice League descending into hell to fight Neron, it inspires that the pure soul Neron wanted is in fact Captain Marvel. Marvel nearly kills his friends who have become possessed by Neron and are attacking him, but is stopped by the trickster who convinces Marvel to offer his soul in return for his friends and the Earth. Neron accepts, but because Marvel's soul was offered freely and for other people, and thus making it pure, it destroys Neron, who can't devour good souls. And so ends the crossover. So, in review, with so many issues, there are always going to be a mix of good and bad ones. The main series, Underworld, was, to be honest, average. It's not terrible, the artwork was good, and the writing had, at some point, really good dialogue. The writing of it from the viewpoint of the trickster was a nice touch and I did feel sympathy for him as a character. And at the end of it, I was genuinely glad that he was okay. However, there are some issues with the story. The automatic assumption that Superman is the one he is talking about is a little bit difficult for me to swallow. Are there not anyone else in the DC Universe with a pure soul like Batman or Marvel, both of who are pretty good, pretty generous, and all in all are actually good souls. It seems a bit of a stretch to automatically assume that it's Superman. And besides, wouldn't the Green Lantern know Superman is standing trial? And wouldn't they have let the others know that Superman was standing trial? Of the single Batman comics, I felt Robin, issue 23 and 24, was the best out of all of them. We get some nice development of Tim and a furthering of his relationship, both with Bruce, who does him a kind deed, and Ariana, his love interest at the time as well. Also, the fact that Tim couldn't beat Charlaxis was good and well-written too. Tim's only been a Robin for a year, at most, and it follows logically that he'd not be able to take on a powerful villain but would feel confident in taking out a second stringer, which is what he considers Killer Moth to be. The Oracle concept worked really well as well. It was nice to see her being offered the ability to walk and deflect bullets, two things that would affect her because of everything that she's gone through with the killing joke. We see again this is something that she's not going to really shake off. You, you wouldn't shake it off very easily. However... I think it would have been nice to have seen a lot more of her dilemma and explore the motions it would conjure up rather than have the bulk of the issue taken up by the, the villain files which gets quite annoying quite quickly. The worst issue by far is Batman 525. It's in my opinion a masterclass in how not to write Mr Freeze and how not to draw Batman. Mr. Freeze is completely schizophrenic, and it just comes across as really bizarre 
rather than the sympathetic villain that he should be. The plot for his crime is stupid. Why would Mr. Freeze, a man who is purely motivated by revenge, want to just freeze old people and steal their property? It's such a petty thing and, in my opinion, would be considered beneath Mr. Freeze. I'm not even sure actually how it ties into the underworld, as he never demands anything of Batman to condemn him to hell or make him sacrifice his soul either, which is the whole point of this series. That's something that we see in Devil's Asylum, where Krypton tries to make Batman kill so that Neron can own his soul. The art is awful. Batman looks really, really strange and is overly massive. It really just looks like he's eaten way too much. Mr. Freeze is also very odd-looking and seems to have been dipped in phosphorus because that man is ridiculously glowy. Plus, every time he walks away, all we see are a picture of his feet and arm, which gets very annoying very quickly. We know he is walking. You could just show the back of him walking away. We don't need to see his feet and an arm to know that he is walking. We're not that dumb. Overall, I'd give this 3 out of 5 Batarangs. This isn't a terrible crossover, but I can't say it was a classic either. There are some good issues and bad ones as well. Next episode, we'll be reviewing Bane of the Demon. And now, I'll hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. Thanks for listening. Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are checking out the books for the next episode. As John stated, he has the reading list posted on the forums for you to check out, as well as you can check out the feed for Bat Books for Beginners for all of the Bat Books for Beginner episodes, individually separate from the comic podcast. So with that, let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. Next time, number of books, because our next podcast will actually be three weeks from this podcast. The next episode will be releasing on June 8th, which I know seems like a really long time away, and it is, but the reality is that there's three more weeks in May, and in order not to separate the months like we've done in the past, we have these three-week three breaks. So it gives us a break, and that just means that we'll have an extra long episode the next time around. So as far as what we'll be covering next time, we'll be covering Batwoman number nine, Birds of Prey number nine. Catwoman number nine, Nightwing number nine, Red Hood and the Outlaws number nine. Next time we'll also be covering All-Star Western number nine since it ties into the Court of Owls. Batman Incorporated number one, Batman the Dark Knight number nine, Batman Annual number one, and Batman Beyond Unlimited number four. Batman Death by Design also comes out the last week of May. We will not be covering that on this podcast just because of the, the length of the actual issue and the fact that we're covering so many other issues. You may remember that back in November when Batman Noel came out, we said that we were going to do that on the holiday special and cover Batman Noel, and we never actually got to that due to all the problems on the website. But what we're actually planning on doing is Batman Earth 1 comes out in July, and that would be three different graphic novels 
we're actually going to plan on having a special in August dealing with those three graphic novels, and we'll be reviewing those and talking about those three graphic novels that come out in the past year then, and then we'll probably be doing that once a year then with all of the graphic novels that come out since it does take so much time to actually review a graphic novel. So look forward to that, but be aware that it is coming out and will be available at the end of the month. So with that, that is everything for this episode. Be sure to head over to the website to check out all the daily news related to the comics, as well as movie, TV, merchandise, video game, and general news related to everything within the Batman universe. You can head over to the forums and become a member. If you do, be sure to send us an email and let us know that you need your account activated. You can head over to the website to check out all the other feeds that we have to offer, including the normal podcast, as well as our newest feed, the Batman Universe Bat Fans Podcast, as well as Bat Books for Beginners and a number of other ones you can check out. You can head over to iTunes and leave us reviews. Those are always greatly appreciated. You can always leave comments right there on the website, right where the podcast is actually located. And, of course, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This has been Joe. Burritos! And this is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Next time we see us, still I'm gonna be gone. Neptune's beard! Because. Sorry. Um, I don't know why I'm apologizing. I can edit that out. <laughs> Batman. All right, Batman number nine. Um, Batman. This was an interesting. And this I thought was actually good. I actually saw. Hello, Megan! Uh, was- <laughs> no, he writes in the chat window so you don't have <laughs> Run into. What is this fat guy's name? Uh, Matthew. <laughs> Let's go over to John with that books for beginners. How long was that intro to his that books for beginners? It was like the whole song, and then yeah, no, like, yeah, well, <laughs> five minutes. You know, it's funny you say that because I told him because he sends them over to me, and then I don't always listen to them right away. And I listened to it as I was listening to the comic cast, not the last one, but the one before that, episode yeah. eighty nine. And he had the same thing where it was like a super long intro, and I. But he already had the one for the next one already pre-done, and I sent him a message saying, "You got to change that intro, man. It is way too long. You, you got like a two and a half minute intro and a, a minute and a half outro, for, and you've got six minutes in between. That's way too much. You know, we've got like a forty-five second intro for a two-hour podcast." <laughs> He's doing Underworld Unleashed. Oh. Wait. Starring Kate Beckinsale? Yeah, I was going to (laughs) ask.